being able to change the laws and enact laws that require that in order for you to graduate from a public high school in a certain state, that you have to be educated on personal financial literacy. That is a law that is essentially saying, we're going to prioritize this because if we're telling everybody in this country that when you choose to leave high school, whether you go to college or not, you have to provide security for your family. You have to figure things out. And if you don't, then people blame you. And if you do, then people praise you. Well, then we have to teach you how to think strategically about the money you're going to get. Whatever you end up doing, you're going to get a paycheck. And when that money hits your account, do you feel confident about what you can do with that money to better position yourself and your family? This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the book, Microskills. Hi, I'm Dr. Adara Landry. And I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis. We're dropping in to tell you about our new book, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. That's coming in 2024, published by HarperCollins. We believe every goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that can be easily practiced and learned by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. Microskills is our gift to you. It's fun and efficient. Our promise is that if you buy this book on a Friday, you will be better at your job by Monday. Watch this space for more information and how to pre-order soon. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I'm so glad to be bringing my conversation with Janelle Espinal. Janelle is a YouTuber, a podcaster, an author, an elementary school teacher, and more. In today's conversation, we speak about her book on personal finance, Mind Your Money. We also talk a bit about her podcast, Financially Inclined. When we get to the conversation, I've asked Janelle, like, why write a book now? And why is she the person to write this exact book? You know, I've read dozens and dozens of books about money management and personal finance. And I just felt like a lot of them completely skipped over, you know, the cultural aspect, your personal life and a lot of the mental toll that finances can take on us. And so I decided to write a book that had a little bit of a different edge to it, a different perspective. It's personal finance, but told through personal stories or mixed in with personal stories. And so it really sort of just brings these theoretical topics of money and themes of money to these very practical and real world scenarios and through real people. It's personal finance told through stories of real people and real experiences. Yeah. And that real people is often you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big believer that people are people. And even though you might think, oh, I have nothing in common with them. There's no way our backgrounds are the same. When I have listened to your podcast episodes, when I read your book, I actually think that we have plenty in common. And one of the things I'll start with is sort of this needing to educate oneself on finances. So, you know, Mm -hmm. in my case, I finished college, then med school, and I had all this debt. And I really was not sure what to do with it because there was a lot of gendered Mm -hmm. approach to money in the household in which I grew up. Like boys are supposed to know about money and handle money and finances, but not girls. That's right. Same, same, same with my family. I mean, it's interesting because I watched my parents have that dynamic in their marriage where even if my mom was going to go school shopping, for example, to buy us school supplies, she had to go and report to my dad and say, hey, this is what I'm doing and this is how much I need. Can you have it to me by this day so we can do the shopping by that time? And I just would see her constantly doing that for everything. It was like going to your boss to ask permission to get paid time off. I mean, it was, it was just this dynamic of like, he's in charge and she's, you know, a subordinate. And I, I really 
hated that because in a lot of ways, my mom was better at managing the money than dad was, but he's the one that was the breadwinner. So that just naturally was the dynamic. But uh, but I totally agree. I think that there's, in terms of like traditional approaches to money, there's a lot of gender bias in the structure of who should make more, who should manage the money when it comes, who should understand systems of finance and who should know what to do with the money, that it's definitely more the male and not the female in those traditional heteronormative relationships. Moreover, and I wanted to throw in the word moreover, you started reading books. I started reading books. I'm like, where do I start? Where do I start? And you famously talk about reading Susie Orman. I found a book called Smart Women Finish Rich by David Bach. Now, I don't really care for the title, uh, but he wrote a follow-up book also called The Automatic Millionaire. And for me, it spoke to me because he said, forget making a budget, start making some files. If you have a filing cabinet, you make some files. But basically, (laughs) he just started giving some very clear rules and principles. So what was it about Susie Orman that spoke to you? Yeah, I mean, I like David Bach a lot. He wrote The Latte Factor. He also just, you know, I think The Automatic Millionaire is probably one of the most quoted books in terms of getting started investing. But I think there was something about Susie being a woman that just really spoke to me. It's not a man talking to women. It is a woman speaking to women and talking about her experience transitioning into the financial space. One of the things that Susie talks a lot about is her experience working in finance and how she wasn't somebody who studied finance. She kind of went into banking and end up working at Merrill Lynch back, you know, when they would allow people to kind of sit at the desk and be kind of like a broker or like this in a very salesy type of role. And she noticed how all of the men who were doing the exact same job that she was doing were paid way more. And she ended up in a lawsuit against Merlin. She won the lawsuit. That's, you know, kind of her claim to fame is how she won that lawsuit and and became wealthy. But really what she chose to do was not just stop there and go live her life, was to actually empower women to understand the dynamic of money, how to make it, how to, you know, make it grow, and really how to feel confident making decisions about what you want to do with money. And I think that was the key for me, again, watching my mom not really have that confidence, not really have the autonomy over money-making decisions and seeing this bold, confident woman talk so much about how every woman should have the confidence, the knowledge, you know, the insights into the finances, regardless of whether she's the breadwinner or not in a household. And that to me was like, oh yeah, I definitely see the need for me to become more empowered in that area. And I want to be the one to break the cycle. And so for me, I think it was that aspect of Susie's nature. And also she's just kind of like no nonsense in a nurturing way, but she's, she's like a no nonsense nurturer, right? She's like, got you, she got your back. She's educating you, but definitely not about the nonsense. She cuts the BS. She comes right through it. And she's like, it is what it is. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Here's what you need to do and cut the crap. I also was motivated by what I saw in my household. Again, my dad being the breadwinner, my dad that took care of the finances. And I watched my mom sort of just be led, be told in a way that I was like, not me. That's not right for me. I want to be able to navigate this world and be independent. So your story, as I have said, resonates more so when you were writing this book, Mind Your Money, you were saying, you know, am I going to write a book? There's so many books written in this finance space, but you're like, wait a minute, most of these books are written by cis hetero white men. So tell us more about what made you say, yep, it's time. Yeah. I mean, I got to say now more than ever, it's a breath of fresh air to see so much more representation and diversity in the personal finance space. But when I first started out, uh, was probably what, 2014, 2015, when I just got serious about starting to look for information beyond just like, budgeting and coupon clipping, but like, really, how do people grow wealth? (laughs) Like, let's talk about that. And every voice in that space was a white man. And it just felt 
so weird. It was just odd. It was bizarre for me to only see resource after resource written by, created by, narrated by, what have you, by these cishetero white men. And so I said, okay, I think at this point, I'm going to actively start looking for something different. And it was so hard to find. I mean, Susie, you know, as a woman was great. I'm glad that was my entry point. But Susie's a white woman and has had a lot of privilege in her life in many ways and acknowledges that, right, which is, is refreshing. But it still felt like there was this cultural piece that I just didn't connect with Susie in that way. She didn't understand what it's like to have parents who don't speak English, who never went beyond elementary school, who never were formally educated, let alone formally educated in financial skills. And so I just, for me, was thirsty. Like I really wanted to hear from somebody who actually did understand my experiences and in particular, the challenges that I was facing as a first generation American. And so now I think that it's a lot easier to find, like, you know, in my own collection of books, I have so many books from women of color and, you know, Tiffany Aliche and, you you know, I have Berna Annette here. Like I've, there's so many more women and women of color now in the space. But at, back at that time, there really wasn't. And so I feel even now when you go to search online for books about money or personal finance or, or you know, financial thinking and skills, it's still very difficult to find women and to find women of color. So I was like, that reason alone is enough for me to feel like I need to add my voice into the mix and to allow everybody else who's similar to me in this fact that they felt like there was just always a piece missing that I could help bridge that gap for them and show them that there is a way for you, even if you don't feel like you resonate with all of the, you know, the mainstream traditional narratives in the financial space to this point. Couldn't agree more. You know, I also have read I'm Going to Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. And I would love you to share with the audience pushing back on some of his claims, even when I read his book and I agree with you. There's something different with the man's voice versus the woman's voice. And then, of course, there's, you know, gender in between not having to be absolute. But my point is that there is a difference in how you comprehend it, how you can listen to it and whether it speaks to you. Absolutely. I, I love Rami Zaiti's book. I, his Netflix show is amazing, which is based on his book. And he's been in the space for just for so long. I mean, I first came across him a few years after I graduated college and and he was growing in like the career space a lot. So like how to leverage LinkedIn and how to build a resume and how to, you know, network with folks. Like, And that I really learned from him until later I came across his personal finance book. I was shocked when I saw him speaking out against financial literacy in schools. A lot of my career over the past two years primarily has been devoted to expanding access to financial literacy in schools and specifically through legislation. But before that, just through access to teacher training and curriculum and and these kinds of you know resources. But it's interesting. His main arguments are, you know, who's going to teach it? High school teachers are already overburdened. And even if you find a teacher who's willing to teach it, what are the students going to take away? Because the curriculum is often going to be banks pushing or sponsoring some type of curriculum. He names Wells Fargo and Bank of America when he's, you know, ranting and he says that he doesn't want those banks feeding, you know, his kids ideas about money, which I understand the concern there. But to me, it just goes to show how ill-informed or how misinformed he is about the space, because there are so many incredible nonprofits that operate with incredible non-bank sponsored curriculum, videos, lessons, activities, and resources. And so it just, it, to me, it just means that we need to lean in and like give Ramit more information so that he understands what's happening in the space because he's, he's far removed from it, even though he has strong opinions about it. And that's actually very common when it comes to education. So many Americans, you know, I want to say what, 90 something, 97, 98% of Americans have strong opinions about education, but only 
two to 3% of them have actually worked inside of a school. But the reason why is because 100% of people who graduate from public school in America have a very close relationship to public schools being that they've been a student in one. So they feel this direct connection to these spaces and to these experiences. And that feels to them as if it gives them the credibility and the knowledge and the intel to make a strong opinion. But when really the strong opinions can only actually be well-informed opinions when they've seen the experience of being in a school from both sides, from the student perspective and from the other side of the table as a teacher or as an administrator. And so unless you've experienced both being a student and being a teacher in a school system, it's very difficult for you to have a fully fleshed out, like well-informed opinion about school matters. So I don't blame Ramit. I know that he's ill-informed and I've reached out to him on Instagram. I've DM'd him and said, hey, I want to help you. I want to help you get on the right side of this battle. I want to inform you. I want to send you resources. I want to send you the studies that show that it is effective because that's another one of the points that he made is that he says that the research shows that it's not effective. The research showed that it is an effective more than two decades ago, like we're talking about 2005, 2000, up to 2014, probably there were even studies that showed that it was ineffective. But from then to now, we've seen this huge shift in digital learning. We've seen a huge shift in the ways that education is being implemented, curriculum being used, much more hands-on, much more simulation-based Students are on devices, iPads, laptops, and the learning looks different. It's a lot more hands-on. And so when you look at new studies and new research and look at the cutting edge, it says that it does work as long as it's timely and hands-on. So hands-on meaning the students are, you know, actively doing projects that feel like they're simulating what the real experience would be like. So instead of talking about budgeting, they actually make a budget. Instead of talking about what it looks like to open a bank account, they actually open a bank account. And then timely, just meaning that it's got to be during a time in their life when they're going to apply it immediately. So if you're teaching students about car insurance and they're 14 years old, they can't even get a driver's license until they're 16. So this can't be taught freshman year. This can't be taught sophomore year. It's got to be taught junior and senior year in high school. And so there's a lot of research now that does show it is effective when it's done a certain way. And so, yeah, hopefully Ramit hears this episode and he understands that he just needs to lean into the new research and get in on the cutting edge because it works, it's effective and, and students want it. That's the key too, is this next generation is eager to get access to financial literacy knowledge that they, you know, they know millennials and Gen X and boomers didn't get access to this education. And so they want to be the change. Even though you and I are an N of two, we would have benefited profoundly from this education in our public high school. And you bring up driver's license. By the way, have you gotten your driver's license? (laughs) Don't ask me that. Oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. No, I haven't. It's funny because when I moved to Miami, I was like, I'm definitely going to get it because living in Florida, like you absolutely need it. But the ease with which I can get an Uber in a minute that's at my front door to take me anywhere within 10 minutes or less. It's like, yeah, no, I have not been prioritizing getting my driver's license, but I need to. You and I have talked about, you know, the education that you got at Brown University. You love Brown. I love Brown. The audience knows I talk a lot about college and I bring on alum because I'm just very proud of the accomplishments. Now, to be clear, people accomplish a lot coming out of all universities and colleges, community colleges, right. even those who don't go to college. There's many paths and we welcome those. 
what I was going to say is you graduated Brown University, you did Teach for America, and you were actually a teacher, uh, I think third and fourth grade, and another reason why I resonate. So elementary school teachers are all in my family at all different generation levels. And you've made a very strong argument that as an educator, as a teacher in the classroom, you get many skills. So what are the appreciated skills that you're like, I got this, I got this, that kind of then moved you into being an entrepreneur and an author? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I recently was talking to a woman who was formerly a teacher and we were at this retreat at a conference for women. And she said to me, you know, I worry that if I stop doing my entrepreneurial business, if I stop doing the work that I'm doing with entrepreneurship, that I just have to go back to being a teacher again. And I said, what in the world makes you think that you're limited to teaching when you've been a teacher in the past? You have a significant amount of transferable skills from your teaching experience that you could take your pick in terms of what field or what position, what type of job you want to do, especially if you tacked on entrepreneurship shortly after teaching. So for me, the number one skill of being a teacher is presentation skills. You have to be able to present a lesson to an audience of students who honestly, most of the time don't want to learn. They don't really want to be there to learn. And they'd rather play, especially when you're in a, at the elementary school or middle school level. They'd rather do anything else but sit there and be you know, taught formal instruction. So presenting and keeping their attention is such a difficult thing to do. You have to convince them that they want to be there and they want to learn. And you have to actually change their mind and hook them into getting excited about learning. And then you have to present to them in a way that keeps their attention throughout the lesson, however long that might be, 45, 60 minutes all day long of instruction. So presentation is huge and that has allowed me to be an excellent speaker. I mean, I've been paid amounts I never would have thought I'd be paid to get on a stage and speak to an audience of 2000 people. And that doesn't scare me because I've done it time and time again with smaller audiences, 20, 30, 40 students, but it was all the practice that I needed. I got my 10,000 hours and beyond from teaching. And so in addition to presentation skills, I would say communicating. I mean, you have to communicate to your students one-on-one. You have to give them feedback. You have to be responsive to them in terms of their behavior, as well as their academic performance. You have to communicate with their parents, with your fellow teachers, with principals, with all kinds of stakeholders and you have to constantly be communicating in a way that's best received by that stakeholder. So you're not going to talk to your students the way you talk to your principal. And so you have to really adjust the way that you speak to people. And that in and of itself is a huge skill. Problem solving. I mean, the way that children behave in a classroom when they don't feel like learning it can oftentimes cause disruptions. <laughs> Most of the time, there will be disruptive behavior and you have to quickly think on your feet. You have to be able to problem solve without allowing it to suck away too much time from the learning or suck away the attention of the other students who are trying to focus on instruction. So you really have to be quick on your feet and you have to be a problem solver. In addition to all of that, the writing, the amount of writing that you do to create curriculum, to grade papers, to write emails, to reach out to parents, you know, newsletters, bulletins, all kinds of writing and for students and to students, but also adults. So, I mean, just there's so many skills. I always say people don't realize it. They don't call it what it is. But even just convincing students that a topic is fun to learn about, that is sales. And you have to sell to a student that this is going to be the coolest thing you've ever done. And that way you get their attention at, at least enough to get them learning. Once they're learning and once they're intrigued, that curiosity, that spike, then they're with you, right? But you have to first hook them. And that to me is it's a sales pitch at the beginning of every lesson. And you've got about two to three minutes to hook them. Otherwise you lose them. So I really do feel like teaching is so underappreciated. And oftentimes teachers themselves don't recognize, you know, the plethora of skills that they have just from being in the classroom for a couple of years. At one point, many of my friends became teachers. And now I think essentially 100% of them have left 
teaching. And, you know, the frustration, I think it's the messaging they get. I think there's this societal message about feeling valued and they get a bit of a inferiority complex because of the way, you know, everything you just outlined is exactly why educators, teachers should feel like they've got a toolbox chock full. And you're absolutely right. People don't. And I think, you know, I like sports and I think athletes should get paid, especially women athletes should get paid equally to men. But, you know, when we look at who is valued and who gets the money in our society, why don't we put more towards education? Absolutely. Your voice. And you talked about your voice and you are a visible voice. So thank goodness you're on the Visible Voices podcast. When did you realize you had it and when did you start using Mm. it? Oh, man. So I started using my voice before I realized I truly had a unique voice uh, that mattered, which is interesting. And that just goes, you know, to my nature. I'm, I'm a very animated person. I think being in the classroom made me even more so. But even when I was a kid, I was the kind of kid who was always seeking attention. Growing up in a house with nine you know, kids, I have eight brothers and sisters, you get what you can in terms of attention from your parents and, uh, and from other adults. So I was, you know, definitely attention seeking behavior. Like I was very dramatic. I was always telling stories trying to make people laugh. And, you know, just when it was coming out time to play outside with other kids, like I was always the one that was like bossing everyone saying, okay, let's play this. This is what I would, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And it's so funny because from a very early age, I had that, you know, disposition about me. But as I got older, I kind of, you know, calmed down a little bit and I started to try to figure out where can I use my voice? But I think it was hard because I just didn't have a lot of confidence. I felt like I didn't really fit anywhere. I'm not as intelligent as people around me, especially because I was constantly being challenged by the environments I was in. I went to you know, a high school that was a specialized high school. So sort of like a magnet school. You had, you know, the most talented kids in all of New York City going to that one school every day. That in and of itself could you know, be a blow to your confidence where you think you're really skilled at something and then you witness the best talent in the city and you're like, oh my goodness, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. And then going to Brown and you're surrounded by some of the wealthiest and some of the most intelligent and some of you know all of those accolades. And now you're again, you're sort of questioning yourself. So I think that the confidence was lacking for me, but I was certainly using my voice. I mean, in 2015, I started a YouTube channel and I just started posting tutorials about you know, money, because I noticed a lot of the people around me didn't know the things that I knew. Simple things like how to increase your credit score. You know, what comprises your credit score? What, how is it made up of? You know, what are the factors involved in in summing up your score? And so these were things I had nerded out about and I learned about. So I was like, oh, I guess if everybody doesn't know this stuff, I could, you know, put some tips and tricks together. So I was using my voice. And I think the classroom experience of being the teacher, being the person in charge, managing, you know, the classroom every day allowed me to feel confident again to use my voice voice, but knowing and recognizing that my voice really mattered didn't come until later. And that was because I recognized so many people were thanking me, expressing gratitude for the fact that I was using my voice for the voiceless, for a lot of people who feel like they're voiceless. You know, they're not, they have a voice, but they don't feel empowered to use it or have tried and attempted to use it and have been shut down, you know, rejected, not allowed to speak out and not listened to. And I think that because people were reaching out to me to say, thank you so much. You know, I came to the U.S. I didn't know what to do. I saw your channel and I established credit right away, opened a bank account. And because of what I learned from you, I was like, this is wild that I never thought that was going to be the outcome of a couple of tutorials online. But by the nature of talking the way that I talk, being how I am and just, you know, being myself, others like me resonated with the content. And that's when I realized that my voice had real power. And so I think the order sort of was reversed for me, but, and I'm, but I'm, 
I'm glad I ultimately did come to a point where I realized that my voice carries power because I've been able to then pursue things that I really wanted to bring my voice to, like, you know, changing legislation and affecting requirements in high school for financial literacy for not just a couple of weeks, but for a full semester class. I mean, if you're taking algebra, if you're taking English language arts, if you're taking biology, why aren't you taking a money skills class? It, it doesn't make sense. So being able to extend my voice into spaces where it really isn't often included and it's almost unexpected to find a voice like mine in these spaces, I think has ultimately come from the confidence combined with the knowledge of the power that my voice does carry. Yeah. And one of the biggest things I want, I know you realize, I realize, listeners to realize is your experience, you're growing up, your parents coming from the Dominican Republic and blah, 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 not knowing, like your voice is actually generalizable for everybody. And what I'm saying is like, had I had that course in high school, it would have benefited Mm me. You know, people say, you know, you're a doctor. What do you wish people had told you when you first started? Quite honestly, I wish someone had told me that I should open up a retirement account. Nobody told me. Now, am I okay? Yes, I'm okay. But would I, in my geeky, nerdy way, the way you are, would I have started contributing in my 20s? 100% yes. Like, I don't mind giving up fill in the blank to like contribute $25 a month to a retirement account. We know the curve is really, really impressive. Absolutely. And so what you share, what your book teaches is generalizable and it's for everybody. And that's sort of going back to authors and the cis-hetero white male authors, everybody just takes it for granted that they're writing for everybody. And what I want everybody to take for granted is you are writing and speaking and sharing and educating for everybody. Yeah, I love that. I do, because I really do feel like oftentimes a lot of the books that I read, maybe the author perceived that they were writing for everybody, but it didn't feel like it was for me just in the fact of the language. You know, one of the big aspects of my book that I really focused and put a real effort into making it obvious that I was putting an exerted effort into this was the vocabulary, making sure that I spotlighted, hey, this is a term that you probably don't know. I didn't know it. Now let's pause here. Let's acknowledge that this is a new term for most people probably. And let's acknowledge like that it has a meaning that can be overcomplicated. It can also be broken down into very simple terms. And so just the language of money is something that a lot of these books about personal finance, even articles that I've read online, They just assume that we're all on the same page with this language of money. And we're not all on that same page. You know, we're not. So when we come to the space with assumptions about what we don't know and what we know, to me, that's like the problem there. We have to kind of assume that nobody knows anything. And when you do it that way, then you really have a catch all. Then you're really doing content for everybody, because even if you knew it, great. It's not going to hurt to reread it. But for folks who didn't know it, how amazing is it going to be to see that the author paused and really explained something that would have tripped you up and been confusing for you and just pretend that it's not a big deal and have you keep reading past it is so frustrating. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to really emphasize that when it comes to vocab in, in my book. 100%. 100%. In me gusta la lingua. So I love languages and just like speaking medical, speaking finance, 100%. Yeah. The assumptions that you know these terms, it's really important to break it down. One other point That's I right. wanted to say about had we gotten a course in high school, we wouldn't have been potentially victim of the predatory behavior. And you really highlight the predatory behavior that happens when you go to college and yeah. all the sort of like you know, like candy in a candy shop. Like, I want this, I want that. You're going to give me a credit card. I can put all this on my credit card. Yes, please sign me up. Right, right. Yeah, and I talk about it in the book about how there's now legislation, but that was not in place before, you know, what, 2009, 2010. So 
what was happening pre-2010 was just everybody and anybody who goes on a college campus can get a credit card. And, you know, you get a credit card, you get a credit card, you get a credit card. And, you know, you think, oh, that's good because you start young. But without the education, it's really there's a seesaw. You know, you have they have an inverse relationship when you have regulation on one side and education on the other. When there is a lot of regulation in place to protect consumers, you tend to be OK with little to no education because there's things in place to protect folks. Right. But there wasn't a lot of regulation. And so anybody could offer you a credit card just as soon as you turn 18. But yet at the same time, there wasn't education. And so there needed to be a lot of education to make up for the lack of regulation. So I'm glad there's more regulation now, but there's still such a need for education because there's so many spaces where the regulation just isn't where it needs to be in terms of protecting consumers. And honestly, in terms of the, you know, the political landscape, a lot of folks tend to say, no, we don't need to regulate. And if you don't believe that we need to regulate, well, then you best believe we need to educate because at the end of the day, you can't put it on individuals to make decisions that they don't have the proper information necessary to make an informed decision. So that's why for me, it comes down to championing education and access to education, and expanding access, because ultimately you can't make a decision about something that you don't know about. You really don't know what that, you know, what it looks like, what it feels like, how it works. Then how are you supposed to make a decision about that? Yeah. So what's keeping you up at night? Ooh, for me these days, it's really how difficult it is to prove that access is not equitable across the country. So I've, you know, been in meetings with folks who said, oh, you know, it doesn't matter where you live or what you do. If you go to this school or if you go to a school that teaches any type of financial literacy, you're going to get access to the same education. And research shows that that's not true. So we're really trying to find ways to prove that there is a lack of equity in terms of who gets access to financial education. And what happens is when it's not in the school system at all, it's left to the household. And so when we look at that, talk about ways of perpetuating cycles, especially lack of education. When you have a parents in your home, in your home who don't know personal finance themselves, they haven't been taught it, they never learned it, and they're kind of scraping by and just trying to figure things out on their own, they're likely going to avoid talking about money completely because they're embarrassed about it. You know, they want to kind of tuck their head under the sand because they either have bad credit or because they have a lot of debt or what have you. And they're not where they want to be financially, so they don't want to bring it up. So they don't talk about it at all. Or they actively teach things that are probably not accurate. You know, they'll tell you, stay away from credit cards because it's bad. A credit card is going to be debt. The moment you get one, you're going to be in debt. And they kind of, you know, do this fear-based sort of education in their mind is education, but ultimately what it is, is really fear mongering. So in my mind, it's either they're going to talk to you in a way that isn't fully accurate and maybe actually based in fear, or they're not going to mention it at all. And funny enough, research shows that the first one is worse. Not mentioning money at all is actually worse than getting incorrect money lessons. Because at some point you're talking about money, you're actively involved in money, you're engaging with money, even if it's through misinformation that can eventually it would be corrected down the line as you start to put yourself into spaces where you're getting a credit card or you're asking questions about it versus not talking about it at all. There is zero exposure. And so those children grow up to become students who have even worse problematic financial behaviors because of the lack of conversation around money at all. So for me, that's huge because if we don't talk about it in school, it ends up being left to the household. The parents who understand it pass it on to their kids. The parents who don't 
don't pass it on to their kids. And so then we just perpetuate these negative cycles. And so for me, that kind of keeps me up at night, especially as we're starting to get a lot of progress with states requiring financial literacy in schools. It always feels to me like it's just not quick enough. And I'm very impatient. And my nature is like, I'm a very impatient person. I'm like, like we needed to have gotten to 50 states yesterday. And we just now, you know, in July of 2023, got 23 states, which is amazing. Great progress. Because 2018, there were only five states that required this for a full semester. So we've made a tremendous amount of progress, but still to me sometimes just feels like it just isn't fast enough. Mm. Now we got to do more. I want to share two stories of my own. I told a little bit about my household growing up, sort of this very gendered behavior regarding expectations and who took care of the money. You know, when you go to college, there are two things you find out. Number one, you find out whether or not kids were allowed to have junk food in the household. Like I remember being like so surprised, <laughs> like we were allowed to have Pop-Tarts and Count Chocula and Blueberry and Lucky Charms. Like we were allowed to eat junk for breakfast, sugar. And I met all these kids that were like, sugar was forbidden and they weren't allowed to have anything, no sugared cereals, no sugar. No, that's so interesting that households were so different, but more importantly and relevant to today's podcast conversation is money. Mm. You saw that everybody had different relationships to money. Different conversations happened in the household. I found there was different trends that you saw if classmates, parents immigrated, if they had grown up not talking about it, not worrying about it. Some had five jobs on campus, but there was shame. They didn't talk about having five jobs on campus because of the overall feeling of social status, socioeconomic status at college at Brown. I was in residency training and when you're a resident, you get paid, but it's very meager and you're not getting paid for the amount that you're working and you're still carrying forward your debt if you have debt from college or med school because you're not yet in a position to pay it back. So I was meeting one of my friends who always looked dressed to the nines, fashionable, nice clothing. And she said to me, Risa, how many credit cards do you have? And I said, what do you mean how many credit cards? And she's like, well, I have like five credit cards maxed out. How many cards do you have and how many are maxed out? And I just looked at her because I had, because I knew I knew I didn't know, I was afraid. So I always did the live way below my means. Right. And I had one, which I barely allowed myself to use, you know, and I paid off every month, not yeah. because I had necessarily educated myself. I was making actually good decisions. It turns out once I read, but more, I was just scared to death of doing something. And like, I don't know, something bad was going to happen. So I just did the like live scared, spend scared. Whereas yeah. I couldn't believe that there was someone that had five credit cards maxed out. And so again, just reflecting that everybody has a different relationship, different knowledge. Absolutely. And that's such a scary story because, and the reason why it's so scary is because it's so prevalent. It's so common. It wasn't just her, you know what I mean? And like, funny thing is you were probably impressed with her, you know, fashionista status. You're probably like, wow, like she always looks good. So it was just, but you didn't even question what she was having to do to look that part, right? And it's so interesting because it happens so often today. It's like, we see things and we're so impressed by status symbols like oh look at that car oh oh, wow look at the brand name on this you know or the she's always got perfume nice outfit and we don't think about how a lot of that is financed through debt and the position that that puts people in unfortunately your legacy oh legacy i love this word so i spoke at fincon last year which is a big financial conference for creators and you know folks who are in the money space or the personal finance space and my speech had a theme which was me we legacy and the me portion was seeking to partner with 
groups or, you know, get sponsorships or partnerships in my work that like feed me, my ego. You know, it's like when I was growing up, I had no knowledge of credit cards. I ended up getting in a bunch of credit card debt. And now I send invoices and collect money from the very banks that I paid all that interest to because they hire me to speak or to be you know, an, an educator or an influencer. That's all about me. That's my own ego, right? Then there's this we group of partnerships, which is really about the community and the collective. It's about all of us, how we can be better. So that's going to be the community-based organizations, the credit unions, the schools, the community centers, the churches, and really doing work that's about changing the community in a grassroots way. Those feel amazing. But the real value and the real reason why I get up every day is the legacy work that I get to do, which is thinking about beyond my lifetime, beyond your lifetime, beyond the lifetime of my nieces and nephews and all the people in my family beyond the lifetime of anyone that I'll ever meet on this earth. What about beyond them, right? There's going to be these future lives, these generations to come. Am I living my life in a way where I'm thinking about them and the work that I'm doing is going to create an impact for them in a positive way? And for me, that really has been the past two years being able to change the laws. I mean, when we think about how this country works and the systems that are perpetuated and how they uphold certain privileges for certain people and withhold privileges from others, to me, it's been like the code of law of our country, right? The laws say what you can and can't do. Being able to change the laws and enact laws that require that in order for you to graduate from a public high school in a certain state, that you have to be educated on personal financial literacy. I mean, like it literally makes the little hairs on my arm stand on end because I'm like, that is a law that is essentially saying we're going to prioritize this because if we're telling everybody in this country that when you choose to leave high school, whether you go to college or not, that you have to fend for yourself, you have to figure this out and you have to provide security for your family and you have to figure things out. And if you don't, then people blame you. And if you do, then people praise you. Well, then we have to teach you how to think strategically about the money you're going to get, because regardless of what position you go, whether you go as an entrepreneur, whether you become a middle manager, whether you go to college, whether you whatever you end up doing, you're going to get a paycheck. And when that money hits your account, do you feel confident about what you can do with that money to better position yourself and your family? And if you don't, then we failed you, you know, systemically. So being able to really truly create systemic change for me is the way that I feel like I'm working towards a lasting legacy. Theresa, wrap up. Well, special thanks to Janelle for joining me in conversation and just really, really saying things the way they are. I learned quite a few things. First off, I would say that I really like the initiative that she is championing with getting public high schools to provide courses in financial literacy. I also like the aspect of talking about money and talking about finances. I think this taboo topic needs to stop being taboo. And I think the more we talk about salary and salary equity, the more we will achieve equity for traditionally marginalized groups. Finally, voice and visible voice, whether you YouTube, whether you podcast, whether you write, you have something to say. Even if you think there have been 20,000 books already about a topic, there are many, many, many podcasts already covering something. Use your voice, make it your own, put it your way out there. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DeCorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. 
please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.